This series includes discussions of sensitive topics, including transphobia, homophobia, sexual violence, and drug use. Listener discretion is advised. It's a cold, drizzly December morning on Larch Mountain, the highest freestanding peak in Clark County, Washington, which on clear days boasts stunning views of nearby Mount St. Helens. But today, there are no picturesque vantage points atop the summit at Larch. A dense canopy of fir trees and a low cloud ceiling make it seem later in the day than it is. It feels as if night is setting in. It was overcast. It was cold. Members of Clark County Search and Rescue fan out about 30 feet down a rugged hillside. The train was steep. The ground was muddy. Scott Watkins and his teammates dig the tips of their hiking boots into the soupy ground, which squishes under the weight of their rubber soles. As they trudge upward, they wipe raindrops from their face. There was a lot of vegetation, lots of rhododendron-type shrubbery, lots of uh, vine maple. They're carrying hedge trimmers and machetes to slice through jagged vegetation. A shrub called Devil's Club tears into Scott's gloves as he sweeps his hands over the ground. Tiny little spikes from the plant burrow into the arms of his jacket. And they're just covered in these really fine barbed hooks. And they grab your clothes and they cut your face and they, they get in your skin and they just hurt. The searchers are just off a Forest Service road composed of mostly dirt and gravel. Their bright red uniform shirts are a sharp juxtaposition to the natural landscape around them. The glow of headlamps and flashlights illuminates the hidden underbrush of the forest. In this situation, it was going to be easier for us to go uphill because we're going to be virtually on our hands and knees. So I can reach out on either side of me and touch the shoulder of the person next to me. So we're that close. And we're looking under pine needles and leaves and twigs and, and whatever. We're looking for we're looking for some really tiny things like teeth and fingernails and earrings and buttons. And the longer it's been out there, the more it starts to take on the characteristics of its surroundings. So everything starts looking brown and tan and black and mossy green. Scott and his team spread out even wider in a line. Their bodies hunched over so much, they're nearly hugging the wet slope beneath them. So we would start, we going, ready on the right? And the person on the right would yell, ready on the right? Ready on the left? People on the left would use it. Move the line. And so we would then start moving through the field. As they inch forward, one of Scott's teammates yells out. Hold the line. He's found something. It's a hip bone. And then... Hold the line. A femur. A soul at I'm Ashley Korslin. You're listening to Should Be Alive, a KGW original podcast. Episode 3 of 6, Bringing Nikki Home. People come out here to hike, to hunt. Um, they go target shooting. Um, it's just, it's peaceful. I mean, people come out here to just see nature and whatnot. And 
Larch Mountain is a place major crimes detective Joe Swenson has visited several times in his decade with the Clark County Sheriff's Office. His agency has jurisdiction here. And it's it's fairly remote, but it's also not. Um, you know, it's from my office downtown, yeah, it's a good hour drive. But from many parts of the county, it's, you know, only a few minutes, really. But again, if you're driving at night, um, you don't know how far you've really gone. And so it feels like it's much more remote than it really is. Detective Swenson was one of the first people to learn that human remains had been discovered in this rural part of the county. I actually got a call from my boss, and he said that uh, it appeared a body had been found up here in the woods. At the time, Swenson was aware of the missing persons case involving Nikki Kuhnhausen, but he didn't immediately jump to the conclusion that this could be her body. Over the decades, there have been many missing people and unsolved crimes in the county. Very rarely do we get good enough information that we know exactly where a body is and go find it. Um, because I can tell you that I have homicide cases that we've worked on where we had a conviction on the case, but we still haven't found the victim's body uh, because we didn't have good enough information to know where to look. And we talk all the time. There are bodies all over the place out in the woods that people dispose of. You know, we have a bunch of cold cases that haven't been solved. We have numerous homicides from the past 20, 30, 40, 50 years where bodies have been recovered from the woods, but you know that there's still more out there. After we got the call, Swenson got into his white SUV and drove an hour out to Larch Mountain. When he got there, he took notes as a patrol deputy briefed him on the initial call. Swenson learned that a man who was out on the mountain picking bear grass had discovered human remains. There's a, a phrase that I use, sometimes we're good, sometimes we're lucky, and sometimes it's good that we're lucky. Um, because, like I said, sometimes we just don't have all the information. So, you know, it was very lucky that these beargrass pickers happened to be out here on this day. The beargrass picker's name was Rogelio Salas Garay, a middle-aged man from Elma, Washington, a small town of a few thousand people, about 30 minutes from the Pacific Ocean. Rogelio had made the two-and-a-half-hour drive from Elma to Larch Mountain, which is a popular spot to pick beargrass. It's a favorite plant for pickers in the Cascade Mountains and can grow up to five feet tall. In the spring or summer months, beargrass blooms and produces these beautiful, creamy white flowers. Historically, Native Americans used the leaves for basketry and to weave garments. But more recently, beargrass has become a staple in the commercial floral industry. So it's a common sight to see people out picking the plant to later sell to florists to be used in arrangements. Okay, see? And that's what Rogelio was out doing that December morning. Este, hola, yo soy Rogelio, Salas Garay. Rogelio speaks Spanish, so we have a translator narrating his interview. It's beautiful. It's all mountain range, lots of trees. It's where you find that leaf and where it blooms. It's all trees there, and the mountain is there. It's beautiful there, really. Rogelio had gone out to the mountain early that Saturday morning. It was late fall, almost winter, and being up in the high elevation of the Cascade Mountain Range meant it was cold, so he layered up for the conditions. Rogelio also wore rubber boots to maneuver through the muddy terrain. You go in there to cut the leaves, and so I went by myself, and I was walking around, checking to see if there were leaves. He walked around the rugged hillside looking for the long green leaves. That's when he saw it. A skull. 
It was covered in mud and nestled between various vegetation and fallen branches. It had clearly been out in the woods for some time. I didn't know if it was from an animal or a human. I stood there thinking, and like I told them, I grabbed a stick and moved it to see if it was from an animal or a person. As he stepped on twigs and leaves to get a closer look, well, I thought it was from a human. Rahelio could see that without a doubt, it was a human skull. Cell reception on the mountain was spotty, but Rahelio's friend had enough service to dial out to 911. Rahelio arranged to meet with a deputy five miles down the road at the Larch Correction Center, a minimum security prison that houses just under 500 male inmates. With the deputy following behind him in his patrol rig, Rahelio drove back to where he had discovered the skull. They parked, and the deputy got out to assess the scene, scanning the area for evidence. Rahelio stayed for a while longer, cutting more bear grass and watching as one by one, more deputies arrived. And non-human bones get mistaken for human bones all the time. Detective Joe Swenson was one of them. Very quickly, it was obvious that, yes, we had a human body out here, or remains of a human body. We spent some time out in the woods, in these woods, searching through, uh, looking for for items, and it became very obvious that we were going to need more time. Uh, So we made arrangements to come back out the following day with more detectives, search and rescue teams, um, and the medical examiner's office in order to help us kind of search the ravine area down the hillside, um, you know, towards the creek and whatnot, and see if we could find as many items as possible. I can't tell you how many times we go out, you know, somebody goes out in in the wilderness and doesn't come home. That's when Scott Watkins of the Clark County Search and Rescue Team was called in. And so eventually somebody has an idea of where they might be, and so we're asked to go out there and look. And how many times we go and we don't find anything, either because it's not there or it is there, but it's buried so deep we can't see it. And this one was different because th- there was a lot of material out there and we found a lot of stuff. Many of their call-outs involve searching for missing hikers or someone lost in the woods. It's rare for them to get a call that could be criminal in nature, especially a homicide. So the team had to work carefully as they spread out along the hillside to collect evidence. With each new discovery, they plunged markers into the ground, little orange flags on wire poles. It only took a few minutes for the area to become peppered with little bursts of orange, signals for deputies to come bag up evidence. So we're waiting for the deputy to come over and let's look around here while we're waiting and see if we find something else. And sure enough, about nine inches away, there was a ring, but it wasn't shiny. It was like black and it was partially buried. And had that bone not been there, and had we not had a little extra time to wait for that deputy to get get over to us, we could easily have missed that. And so every time somebody yells that hold the line, it's like, oh, man, there's stuff out here. They're they're finding stuff. we got to stay vigilant. The search and rescue team was out for more than four hours recovering evidence. One searcher even brought his own metal detector to locate various pieces of jewelry. Searchers ultimately discovered more than a dozen items, including tennis shoes, a lime green windbreaker, underwear, a bandana, watch, tongue stud, and four rings, one of them with a distinctive bright blue gemstone. They also found vertebrae, ribs, and a femur, and a cell phone charging cord 
knotted around clumps of hair extensions and a small U-shaped bone. It was a hyoid bone from a human neck. It was clear to searchers that this body had decomposed over time. What was left had been scattered by animals. And by looking at the cell phone cord knotted around bone and hair, it appeared something awful had happened to this person. Now, investigators had to determine whose remains they had found. Clark County Sheriff's detectives knew the Vancouver Police Department had a missing persons case that could be a match it was very possible these remains were Nikki Kuhnhausen's. And when I got the text message that, hey, there's a search and rescue team recovering remains right now out of Large Mountain. The crews on scene immediately notified Vancouver Police Detective Dave Jensen, the lead investigator on Nikki's case. Day one, they were, they were finding hair extensions and female clothing, things like that. So we were pretty sure this was, this was going to be Nikki. After comparing the evidence photographs to photos on Nikki's social media accounts, Jensen was certain these remains were Nikki's. Pictures showed her wearing the same jewelry recovered from Larch Mountain. We had photos of clothing and uh, jewelry, things like that from, from social media. The hair extensions and all that all matched up. We had a very distinctive wristwatch and a very distinctive ring. The remains were then sent off for formal identification through DNA and dental records. A medical examiner later confirmed the remains did, in fact, belong to Nikki Kuhnhausen. With the evidence indicating Nikki had been murdered, Detective Jensen now had to shift his focus to finding her killer and getting him into custody. Back at home in Vancouver, Lisa Woods was unaware that searchers had been out at Larch Mountain recovering her daughter's remains. It had now been six months since Nikki disappeared. Christmas was a little over a week away, and everyone around Lisa was busy decorating their homes, shopping for gifts, and planning family get-togethers. But Lisa couldn't bring herself to do any of that. How could she get in the holiday spirit without Nikki there? Lisa felt empty and only had the strength to make Nikki a handmade Christmas card. I thought she was going to be home for Christmas and I wanted to have a card for her. Do you remember the moment that you found out that Nikki was discovered? I remember it very clearly. Um, in the house I was in, there were three windows on the door and um, Dave was in the middle. It was Detective Dave Jensen. Then he had two suits, I call them suits, because he wears jeans and hoodies, but two suits on the side of him, and I, and I knew it was December 17th at about 2 o'clock, and I just fell to my knees, and the next thing I know, he was, he was holding me, rocking me, saying how sorry he was, and uh, they stayed for a while so we could talk about things, and, but I remember very clearly, yeah. Is there some sense of also relief knowing that, like you said, you you got Nikki back, though, as opposed to never knowing? Yeah. Never knowing. I know it doesn't make it easier, but is, is there... Oh, there's so many tragic stories out there where they have no, you know, no clue or no idea or, or they're just missing, you know. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm very blessed to have had um, the bear grass picker up on the mountain. That night, I was walking back from, uh, from dinner. Alex Kuhnhausen, Nikki's older brother, also vividly remembers the day he got the news. He was in prison at the Larch Correction Center, coincidentally just five miles down the road from where Nikki's remains had been found, the same place where the bear grass picker had arranged a meeting with the deputy to take him to where he found Nikki's skull. She's like, what's your name? A sergeant at the jail came to Alex's cell and told him there was some sort of family emergency. And I told her my name. She's like, I need to talk to you. And I was just, I knew right there, you know, and she's like, they called and they, they found your sister's body and stuff. And I was just like, I didn't know how to feel. I mean, like, I didn't even cry. I didn't, you know what I mean? I just sat there for a second. And she's like, take all the time you need. And when you want to call your family, you know, I still haven't cried about it. It just, I don't know, it hasn't hit me yet. The whole time in prison, it didn't feel real until I got out here, you know. It was literally like a mile and a half of where she was found was where I was at. So it's like every day I'd walk. I was there for over two years, you know, and I would walk. I would, when I was running the track, I'd run five miles every day. And when I was running the track, I'd just sit there and I'd just think about like, what she went through, you know, all that pain that I wasn't able to take care of her, you know what I mean? The last time Alex saw Nikki was three days before she disappeared. Alex was being placed into the back of a patrol car after getting arrested for possession of a stolen motor vehicle and skipping bail. Do you remember the last thing you guys said to each other? That we love each other, because I was in the back of a cop car and, you know, the cop let me give her a hug and stuff and... I told her I love her, and she's like, I'll bail you out. And I was like, just leave it alone, you know, because I was, yeah, I got in trouble and stuff, and I knew I was going to prison. So it's just, I just told her to just take care of herself, you know. Yeah. Me being that protective older brother, that's what I thought of, you know, like I'm supposed to protect her. And so it's like that night played over and over and over in my head, like what could have I done different? One day after investigators notified Nikki Kuhnhausen's family about the discovery of her remains, they held a press conference to make the news public. I was covering another story and I got the call that I needed to to get over to the Vancouver Police Department. Rosemary Reynolds, a reporter for Portland radio station KXL, had covered Nikki's case since the beginning. And they, all the desk said, it's, it's about Nikki. And I thought, Do you, you don't have anything more? And they said no. And so just the whole time driving over there, my heart was pounding. And I thought, this isn't going to be good. When Rosemary got to police headquarters, she surveyed the room and took note of all the top law enforcement administrators standing together. The feeling in the air was somber and tense. When you cover these stories for a long period of time, you just kind of get gut feelings about stuff. And just walking in and looking at everybody and the men that were standing up there, they looked exhausted, but they also really looked heartbroken because they knew what they were going to tell us. Good morning. Uh, my name is Lieutenant Tom Ryan. I'm with the 
Investigations Bureau of Vancouver Police Department. So our victim in this case is Nikki Kuhnhausen. We received a report on June 10th of this year by her mother, Lisa Woods, and we were told that Nikki was missing. And The lieutenant goes on to tell reporters about the bear grass picker who discovered Nikki's remains. We uh, caught probably the biggest break when a citizen on December 7th of this year, walking in the large mountain area, came across a human skull. Over the next week, analysis was done on those items along with the forensic examination of the remains. And with that information, we were able to confirm the remains to be Nikki Kuhnhausen. And then police make their first public identification of the suspect in what's now being classified as a murder. Members of the missing person unit and digital evidence unit obtained social media information on Nikki. They authored warrants for her social media. And using that information, David Bogdanov was identified as a person who picked her up at that residence. His date of birth is 3-19 of 94, and he's a resident of Clark County. Detectives were eventually able to contact Mr. Bogdanov. He confirmed in a meeting with him that he had picked Nikki up at the apartment that morning. Uh, David and Nikki went to a residence in the county. More investigative information came in, um, showed a number of inconsistencies with the statement that he made to detectives. We attempted contact with him yesterday and he uh, declined to, to give any further statements. If you have any questions, I'm gonna bring up my two sergeants. Reporters jump in with questions. Rosemary Reynolds asks why it took 11 days for police to notify the public that Nikki's remains had been discovered on Larch Mountain. Could you tell us why there was a delay in information coming out from December 7th when a skull and other remains started to be found to now? I mean, there wasn't a press release from your office, I don't think, until the last right. year. Yeah, it's just, it's, it was an active case, and we wanted to uh, work a couple other angles before we um, brought it out into the open so we could try and kind of wrap up uh, maybe some other witnesses or talk to the suspect. So it's pretty typical. Part of that time also was spent uh, trying to positively identify the remains. Um, we certainly don't want, there, there's more than one missing person case in the county, and we don't want to Tell, tell them we found remains and, and we think it's your child um, or your, your family member and then have it not be. And still, there were details about finding her body. Here's Rosemary. And David leaving the country that, you know, they were not going to divulge to us. They needed to play it close to the vest because the, the investigation was ongoing. They were trying to get as much as they could. And I, and I think that was the important piece. So if they put out too much information ahead of time, it could, it could get spoiled. We are going to begin tonight, though, with a tragic update just into our newsroom. Police say a Vancouver teenager missing since this summer has been found dead. Within hours of the police press conference, news stations in Portland led with the story that Nikki's remains had been discovered. And for the first time, the public learned the name David Bogdanov. 
Police believe he became angry with Nikki Kunauzen after she told him she was transgender following a sexual encounter. It wasn't until earlier this month that a hiker found her remains in the Larch Mountain area of Clark County. And according to Journalists would learn that investigators had connected David to Larch Mountain and they would quickly begin trying to figure out how. It turns out, Detective Dave Jensen had enlisted the FBI to help him analyze David's cell phone records. The cellular analysis survey team uh, with the FBI, and uh, they're trained to be subject matter experts. A specialized team within the FBI called the Cellular Analysis Survey Team used cell tower data to triangulate where David's phone had traveled the morning of June 6th. They are in the know and they are technical experts on how cell phones and towers communicate and which records are kept and why, uh, how those records are going to look. I mean, that's, that's what they do. Here's what the team found after analyzing the cell tower data. Around 3 a.m., David's phone was in the downtown Vancouver area, roughly around the time he would have first encountered Nikki as she walked down the street. After their initial meetup, when Nikki left to go back to her apartment, David drove across the river to Portland. At 3.59 a.m., David's phone was in Portland. Uh, at 4 a.m., David called an uh, adult video store in Portland. Between 4 and 4.30 a.m., David called uh, numerous female escort ads. David's phone then showed him back in downtown Vancouver around 4.30 a.m. This begins a three-hour block of time between 4.30 and 7.30 a.m. where his phone stays in this general area. This is presumably when David met up with Nikki a second time. Remember, Snapchat records showed David had messaged Nikki around 5 a.m. that he was in a white van. That's when he likely picked her up at her apartment. After this three-hour period, around 7.45 a.m., David's phone leaves the downtown Vancouver area and heads east toward his brother Arthur's house in Brush Prairie. And at 8.19 a.m., David's phone was back in the area of Arthur's residence. That's where David had told detectives he switched vehicles with his brother Stan. Stan then left in the white van, and David and Nikki sat in David's car in the driveway. It's during this window of time that David claimed Nikki revealed she was transgender. About 30 minutes later... At 8.47, David's phone was now moving away from Arthur's residence. David's phone moves east toward Larch Mountain. At 8.57 a.m., David's phone was in East Clark County in the area of Larch Mountain and Camp Bonneville. And then there was a break in phone activity. The phone then went out of service for 90 minutes. David came back to town after 10 a.m. At 10.22 a.m., David's phone was in the area of Arthur's residence again. And at 1.57 p.m., David's phone uh, moved out to the Portland area. Nine hours later, David boarded a plane to Ukraine. At some point, he killed Nikki and transported her body uh, to where it was found in Larch Mountain. It's not clear. It's a very big window of time uh, between when he picked her up the second time and then when he made that drive to Larch Mountain. And um, can't really be sure exactly where she was killed, if she was killed uh, while still near Arthur's house or where that was or if the murder occurred out in the Larch Mountain area. Uh, we really 
can't tell. But somewhere in that period is when he killed and, and moved her. The location data placing David Bogdanov at Larch Mountain and the subsequent discovery of Nikki's remains in that very area gave Detective Jensen enough evidence to bring David back in for questioning, this time in handcuffs. This is a recording from an interview room at the Vancouver Police Department dated December 17th of 2019, the day before police held that press conference with reporters. There's a small table with two empty chairs. A few feet away, David sits expressionless. He's alone in the room. His hands are pulled behind his back in handcuffs. He's wearing all black, a beanie, sweater, athletic pants, and tennis shoes. The cameras roll for 15 minutes before detectives walk in. Hey, David. Hey, how are you doing? No, I'm in spite of things. It's Detective Jensen, along with another detective. That's just some water here, so we're gonna we're gonna take the handcuffs off you. All right. Uh, do you understand that this uh, room is being audio and video recorded? Sure. The other detective asks David to stand up so he can remove the handcuffs. All right. You're not going to flip out on us or anything? You all right? Okay. Yeah, I'm going to Sorry. There you go. David sits down, now with his hands free. Detective Jensen also sits down, facing David. Sorry for interrupting your commute this morning. Um, uh, before I say anything to you about what we stopped you for, I want to read you your rights and make sure you understand, okay? Um, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can be used against you in a court of law. You have the right at this time to talk to a lawyer and to have him present with you while you're being questioned. If you cannot afford to hire a lawyer, one will be appointed to represent you before any questioning if you wish. You can decide at any time to exercise these rights and not answer any questions or make any statements. Do you understand those rights? Mm-hmm. David nods, cupping his jaw in his hands as he looks down at the floor. He avoids making eye contact with the detectives. When we spoke to you last time, I don't know if you recall the whole conversation, but she said that you, you met her earlier in the evening. Jensen brings up their last interview with David from back in October when David denied knowing what happened to Nikki. Mm-hmm. And that's when you're like, I'm not, I'm not into this and kicked her out of the van, sent her on her way. Okay. Does that ring a bell? Yeah. Okay. The other detective jumps in. So before we, before we go on, he's basically summarized everything that you guys talked about. Is there anything that you want to revise before we continue on? I mean, I just stopped by the gas station. Okay. Then, Jensen reveals he's gotten some bombshell evidence tying David to the murder. The location data from the cell towers putting David's phone at Larch Mountain. So at the time that we talked, I didn't have uh, the benefit of all of your, your phone records, okay? But, but now there's been some initial analysis done, okay? So you left, your phone left Archer's house and then went east out past Larch Mountain. There is deafening silence for almost 
30 seconds. What happened on that trip? Another 40 seconds goes by. David says nothing. He clasps his hands together, staring at the floor. That trip took about an hour round trip from Archer's house, past Arch Mountain, up some logging roads, and then back again. You didn't just go to work, did you? I think I want to talk to the lawyer. David says he thinks he wants to talk to a lawyer. It was a fuzzy day, but I don't want to talk to her. The interview is effectively over. Okay. All right. So I understand that you're being arrested today for the murder of Nikki Kuniasa, whose remains have been discovered. Okay. Who was strangled to death. Okay. So we're going to put you back in handcuffs. All right. Stand up for me, please. As he stands up, David's body is stiff. His expression is stoic as detectives put the handcuffs back on his wrists. We're not going to ask you any additional questions because you invoked your right to legal counsel. Okay. That is what's going to happen today. So, all right, sit down. Sit down here, and we are going to finish doing some paperwork. Have some other things that need to do, maybe a little while. Okay, we may put you in a temporary holding cell for a bit. Get you some something to drink. You're probably going to be here for a little while, and then you're going to be booked. All right. After six minutes of questioning David Bogdanov, the detectives leave. David sits for another 13 minutes in silence before the recording stops. David is now formally charged with the murder of Nikki Kuhnhausen. A Vancouver man is in jail tonight, accused of strangling a transgender teen and dumping her body in a remote area in Clark County. Now, Bogdanov is being held without bail. The prosecutor's office will determine if he'll also face hate crime charges. Police said today that the case remains under investigation, and they said the role of the suspect's two brothers, quote, raises some concerns. So more to come on that. In the coming months, attorneys begin preparing for trial. And a new narrative emerges from David's defense team about the night Nikki died, one that paints her as the aggressor and David as the victim. Next time on Should Be Alive. Uh, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I'm Judge Gregerson. I want to welcome you into Clark County Superior Court. We knew when defense came in, they had a picture of a gun, so we knew obviously a gun was going to be involved. The only person who knows what happened that night is Mr. Bogdanov. Mr. Bogdanov believes it's important that he tell you what happened. He tell you exactly what happened, and he will testify to what happened that night. Do you think he's remorseful? Yes. Or, or because he got caught? Because he got caught. <laughs> 
Should Be Alive is a KGW and Vault Studios production. Please follow and leave us a rating or review. We've got a lot more information about this case, including videos and pictures, on kgw.com slash shouldbealive and on the KGW YouTube page. This show is written, produced, and hosted by me, Ashley Korslin. Our audio editor and co-producer is Zachary Carver. Our executive producer is John Tierney. The Vault Studios team includes Will Johnson, Reed Redmond, and Ian Hill. Original artwork by Jeff Patterson and videography by Kurt Austin and Nick Bieber. Audio assistance by Andy Thomas and Vince Jones, and digital media by Louisa Anderson and Celeste Ruiz. Marketing and promotion by Will Mahon and Jennifer Woodruff. Our Tegna legal counsel is Will Herman. Special thanks to Lyndon Walls with Idea Stack Creative, KGW General Manager Steve Carter, News Director Greg Retzinas, and the entire KGW staff. And if you like this show, check out our other podcasts, Urge to Kill and The Yellow Car.